Because it's fundamentally what you're trying to do is you're trying to balance between safety of your users and giving people a voice. Welcome to 20 Minute Leaders. Just sit back, relax, and learn from the leaders of today. It's a journey. Each one is different, unique, inspiring. Let's get started. This episode is powered by JVentures, a community-driven VC fund in Silicon Valley and is sponsored by Hillel Stanford, Upwest, and Hippo Insurance. Welcome to episode 169. We have with us Alon Halevi, Director at Facebook AI. Alon is a director at Facebook AI and previously held positions at Google, CEO of Megagon Labs, and professor of computer science at the University of Washington. He is the founder of two companies, Nimble Technology and Transformic Inc., the latter of which was acquired by Google in 2005. He is the author of the book, The Infinite Emotions of Coffee, and co-author of Principles of Data Integration. Alone is an ACM fellow and received the Presidential Early Career Award for Scientists and Engineers. Alon Halevi, thank you so much for being on my show. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? How have you been doing this crazy time? You know, I've been, um, I've been, it's been a difficult and very challenging time, but I was, I'm trying to make the most of it. So um, I've learned how to cook out of uh, sheer need, and my cooking skills have just skyrocketed to a point where uh, you can actually eat my food. Uh, <laughs> I've been exercising, so if you look, I'm actually mentally in a pretty good shape. That, that's that's pretty fantastic. I think it's always fascinating for me to see how every person interacts differently. You know, I was just talking about it with a family uh, recently about how, you know, it's crazy how we all have this, you know, collective crisis and every person now manages it differently. But alone, one thing that is different from your daily life is that you are a big traveler and you actually traveled to 30 different countries writing a book about coffee. Now, for context, you're also a director within Facebook AI, yet you go and you are writing a book about coffee. What is that all about? Well, so, um, good question. So the <laughs> book was actually written when I was working for Google. Okay. So the go- Google gets the, the, the credit. Google gets the credit. Okay. <laughs> um, and, uh, uh, you know, I think I have no good explanation for why I decided uh, at some point in my 40s that I need to write a book about coffee. Um, I always like to go to cafes. I always like the vibe in cafes. And I always realize, I always notice that in different countries you go, you get different experiences in cafes. And so I was very curious about trying to map that and, and study it in a little more detail. Why am I getting these different experiences? And then I did something um, which ultimately led to writing a book. I started telling my friends that I think I should write a book about coffee. And after a few months, my friends would come start coming back to me and say, "Hey, this book." <laughs> And once you, once you sort of sign a social contract, you have no choice but to, uh, but to do it. Alon, I love that so much. I created a Google map and I, um, and I listed three, three different countries that one must visit in order to write a book about coffee. And many of them I was traveling to or to the area anyway because, uh, because of the nature of my job. Right. But uh, some of them I actually had to you know, take a few days off. That, that's hilarious. Alon, how many, how many cups do you drink a day? Just for context. Only two, but they're very high quality. Only two? Only two. If I'm at a coffee conference, which, A, these things exist. A coffee sure. conference. Yes. That must be one hell of an energy in that auditorium. Yes. And <laughs> so then I would drink somewhere between 
10 and 15 uh, Okay, and before we move on to, you know, technology and high-tech, what is your favorite coffee you've ever tried in your life, the country and place? Uh, the, the favorite is from, from a region called the Yirgacheff okay. in uh, Ethiopia. Um, it came from a one of the one of the cooperatives uh, there. Wonderful. <laughs> it's incredible. Great coffee will just blow your mind. One of the hardest transitions I've had coming from Tel Aviv to Palo Alto, I have to I have to admit, is getting used to not having my afuch in the morning and my cappuccino. So that was definitely a big change. But alone, we only have 15 minutes left. I've wasted way too much about coffee. Take, take me through your journey. You start out as an entrepreneur, move on to researcher, uh, you know, go through these incredible companies like Google, now Facebook, Bell Labs. Well, what is, why are you so curious about your domain expertise? You're also a professor at at University of Washington. Walk me through your journey a little bit. Okay. Um, So I had, um, I had no doubt in life that I needed to be a professor. Really? My father was a professor. It looked like the right job to do. So I never actually um, had a point in my life where I had a hard decision to make. Interesting. So it was obvious that I wanted to do a PhD. At Stanford, of course. I came to Stanford, of course. Uh, and then after I finished my PhD, nobody gave me a professor job. So I went to uh, what was at the time a pretty prestigious lab called AT&T uh, Bell Labs. And a few years later, um, I got an offer to be a professor at the University of Washington. Wow. And I went there. Then I realized that this is what in the height of the 90s when... when uh, when all these startups were going on. Is this where you actually met my father, back in Bell Labs? In Bell Labs, yes. Okay, okay, now I'm making the connection. Yeah, yeah. Your father and I were part, both part of the database community. Right. Uh, the academic database. I've known him since uh, <laughs> I graduated, maybe even before. Wonderful. And so why, why, so first of all, did the professorship live up to your expectations? Why did you want to be a professor? I mean, yeah, your father was a professor, but what attracted you to academia so much as you're seeing, you know, the dot-com, you know, rise and obviously the bubble, but everything rise? Um, you know, I think at the very, um, at, the, at my very core, I like to think about new ideas break new ground and, and ask, sort of ask the questions that will lead other researchers and, and engineers and, and companies to think about the next uh, generation of products. So to do that, um, being a professor is a good, is, is a good place to, to do that. Right. I really enjoyed working with students. students I had some pretty awesome students at, uh, at the University of Washington. Um, and it was, you know, it's, a, it's, I'd still recommend it. I mean, being a professor is, um, you can do much worse. Right, of but course. I had a, an entrepreneurial uh, a bone in my body. Yeah, so take me three or two companies. The second one was acquired by Google, I believe, right? That's when you joined Google? Yes. So okay. The second company was based on a project that we did at the University of Washington. Uh, we, you know, we developed some technology that enabled search engines to actually crawl beyond forms on, on web pages. So if you saw a form, until then, you, had, you needed a human to actually fill in the fields of the form and to get all of the content. We developed a method that, um, uh, that was able to, to do that automatically and therefore add many more uh, high-quality pages 
to the Google index at the time. And we're actually still looking back at, you know, it's 2005, 2006, right? These are the, these are around the time. So, so it's still very early and, you know, I, I, very few people talked about web development and websites just became a thing. Um, that is true. That is true. Um, it's now that I think back at it, that's, uh, that's a good point. Um, we still didn't understand, right, web search was still, even though Google was already a public company when I joined it, uh, web search was still in its infancy, right. and it was a really, I remember at the time, Google was an extremely exciting place to be. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure. People were coming up with I just had a very fascinating chat with uh, Marcel Kornacker from... Uh, from um, Apache Impala, and he mentioned that he was, you know, at Google also in around 2003, 2004, working on databases, and how exciting it was at that time when it was just people are understanding what's the potential. Alon, give me your two cents quickly about this integrate this intersection between academia and startups. You're working on research as a part of academia, which naturally flows into the high tech scene. You formed a company out of your work in the University of Washington. Stanford professors are very well known to do this type of thing. Andrew Ng, I believe, runs about ten or eleven different startups. At the same time so talk to me so what what is this is there a dissonance do they want you to do this is this frowned upon uh, so that is something that has um uh, over the years the universities universities realize that um this is a good thing for them right okay? so you know if you go back even 20 25 years it was a difficult thing to do universities like stanford and mit really realized early on that being part of that ecosystem um, is an important thing for for uh, being to be involved in, and then you know then you get a bunch of lawyers in the room, right? And so it takes a while to work out the process and to make sure that everybody is right. is gets the right credit. The university gets a cut. The students that were involved get a cut. Whatever, all these things work out. So over um, and also universities were letting. Uh, faculty leave for for a year or two to work on their company and then come back. Okay, which is really important because it's very hard to start a, a successful company and not be full time at the company, especially if you're if you're the founder. Right. Um, so I don't think I think today is very different than what it was when you know like fifteen or twenty years ago. I think today it's sort of taken for granted that people are going to do this. Um, and I think the process is much more well established. But again, it varies by by university and country, and um, it's not it's not easy everywhere. All right. Okay. So you know, let's. I'd like to fast forward to to present day. You're you're a, you're a director within uh, the Facebook AI group, and you know everybody talks about AI, and especially now as we're approaching, you know, 2020 is a monumental year, not just because COVID, which is a very data driven pandemic, right? I mean, the whole world is trying to figure out what the hell is happening, but also we have elections coming up, and you have you know d data is just playing such a more significant role in our lives uh, more and more, and that's something that I'm very curious about within Stanford at the level of a director and with your experience in the field and with the responsibilities that you hold, talk to me a little bit about why you're passionate about the field of artificial intelligence and maybe a little bit about our responsibility as we develop responsible and ethical AI. Um, wonderful topic. I'm, I'm totally into that right now. Um, so the short answer is there's never been a time in history where AI is, is so crucial to the continuing functional behavior of humanity, okay? So, so let, me, let me be very specific. 
Yes. Social networks are awesome, right? They enable anybody to have a voice, right? They enable, whether it's a, a famous person or your next door neighbor, anybody can say anything. You can start connecting with people in other parts of the world that share common interests that you've never met before. Wonderful, uh, um, wonderful social uh, value. Right. That, that no argument there, yeah. Okay. But there's always a but when there's a great technology, right? Um, Social networks also are a window into the worst in humanity, whether it is people putting up hate speech, people creating and, and disseminating misinformation, right. people exploiting other people for, uh, you know, for, for various, uh, um, various things that I, I don't even have to mention. Uh, people trying to sell illegal uh, items on on, um, uh, on social networks. So the, the number, and we call these violations, these are right. um, uh, policy violations. But, you know, I mean, the, I think the, the big thing here is that we're talking about scale. So, it's you know, you can you can have a thousand people sitting around and reading and reading every post. But when you get to millions or billions of posts a day, at that yes. scale, it becomes a, a feat, right? Yes. And... and so, th so this problem is known as, as a problem in, of preserving the integrity right. of social networks. Okay? And hopefully in, in a few weeks from now, there will be a survey that a bunch of colleagues and I uh, at Facebook um, will have finished writing uh, about this topic. That I so we're releasing this video after the survey is published so that I can put the link there because I'm sure it'll be fascinating. <laughs> Sounds good. Don't, don't, this might take a while because it needs to be released. Oh, we have time. COVID is here to stay for a long time. Don't worry. This show is going to go on. <laughs> Okay, good. So um, it is crucial. It is crucial to the social networks to keep the the, the content on the network safe for for the users. Right. Okay. And as you uh, pointed out, doing this manually is impossible. Right. So so what we have is we have a bunch of AI systems that are constantly looking at content coming in. Okay. When they are very when these AI systems are extremely confident that this, this content is violating, they will remove it automatically. When they are not confident or when they will receive uh, a user flag, so users will see content. Right, yes, yes. We will send it to um, a large number of paid uh, workers who will look at it and see whether it violates by the way, in terms of the ripeness of the technology, and of course, if I ever ask something that, that is not suitable for here, let me know. But in terms of ripeness of the technology, where does the where are we at now? Is it more so on the automatic flagging or more so on the on the user flagging? Uh, we catch we uh, so, so Facebook actually publishes uh, um, every six months a report on on the numbers that. that okay. Okay. So actually, in some of these, uh, and there are like tens of different violations. Right. First of all, I should say, coming up with policies for what is allowed and what is not allowed. That by itself is... That, yes, and I'm not going to talk about that because that's going to get me <laughs> get us on a rat hole that I, I'm not authorized to go down. Okay? But you can imagine, right? This is, this is a really, really hard problem. It's based on culture. It's based... It's, there's so many... So, uh, yeah, it's like the trolley problem, the classic problem. Yeah. And because it's fundamentally what you're trying to do is you're trying to balance between safety of your users and giving people a voice. Yes, okay? yes. And very small nuances. For example, you are not allowed to advertise, uh, to sell uh, guns on Facebook. That's part of the policy. 
But if you're a gun uh, retailer, you're allowed to talk about what's available in your store. And it's those nuances are crazy. But Alon, I do want to save some time also for thinking a little bit broader about our, the world of AI and where we're headed as a society. So yes, you've got to see both Google and Facebook. And while that's your domain expertise, now I want you, I want to extrapolate with you a little bit about, you know, where what are my kids going to experience in terms of their online behavior? Where do you see AI integrating into our online environment, you know, as the years develop? Because we'll get over our current homes. We'll get over the elections and COVID and everything. I want, I want to know what, you know, my kids can expect in terms of their integrations. That's a great question. Um, so, so, so let's, let's put the integrity problem in perspective first. Yes. Okay? So 30 years ago, we had a huge problem with spam, just mail spam. Yeah. We don't really talk about mail spam anymore. Yeah. Right? Sort of a solved problem. The hope is that all these integrity violations, all this hate speech and misinformation, it will be, uh, you know, the way of the past of like spam. It's a much, much harder problem in terms of of AI and 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 as you point out, the subtleties that are involved. But the hope is that it'll be it'll be like spam. Okay. So now the question is, I think of it. So to me, integrity is you you come onto a social network if you see something that violates the the, the policies. That's a negative experience for them, okay? Our goal is to minimize the, the number of negative experiences that you might have on social media. Right. And now let's look at the, at the happy side. How can we increase or maximize the number of positive experiences that you have? Okay, and that's really where the opportunity lies, okay? How is it, and, and I'm speaking here, not, not authorized by Facebook, because it's just- I'm asking Alona Levy, of course. Okay. How do I make it such that a social network or any AI tool just helps me be my best self yeah. at any given point in the day? Okay, so now if I have a couple of hours free and I'm not sure what to do, the computer knows what the weather is, it knows what's open, it knows what I've enjoyed doing in the past, maybe something what I haven't done for a while. I, what I want is an AI system that knows me so well, but it's very private, right? So we're not, we're not compromising on privacy. I want an AI system that will give me advice at any given point in the, in the day. Yeah. That will enable me to be the best, to, to have the best experiences that I can. And by the way, I think privacy is such an interesting issue. And I say that because, you know, I'm, I'm on the, on the extreme end of, I want, I want everyone to know everything about me. I want them to know where I live, what I do, where I work, when I sleep, when I brush my teeth. I want to have the most personalized experience in the world. A lot of my friends, as, as like my age and older are very, you know, conservative. Like we don't want anybody to know we're very scared yet. We want, so we want to enjoy you know, personalization, but not at the expense of privacy. I'm saying my friends that are younger than me now at Stanford, because most of them are younger than me. And, you know, a lot of the people in, in Israel, privacy, you know, I feel like the generation is like, we, I am like this, this the, the needle that's about to move into the realm of, we want personalization. We've under, we understand that, you know, in order to get real personalization, we have to compromise a little bit of privacy and we're all for it. So I'm a big advocate of that. Um, good. In that, in that case, I would encourage you to, to talk to your friends and tell them to run for office. and, and <laughs> But responsibly, because, because it has to be done responsibly, obviously. It needs to be done responsibly, and obviously fairness and, and biases and data, because at the end of the day, you know, um, we're susceptible to, to a variety of, of uh, 
biases in our algorithms. But this is a field that we're, we're actively trying to figure out right now. Alon, what are you most passionate about? What excites you most in your, in your professional career? Having technology help people in their day-to-day lives. Like you're seeing, seeing the real impact. Yes. So I want, I want something that actually makes a difference, that either reduces friction for me or, uh, or makes my life better in some way. So, so cool. Alon, I want to... I, I like to, to work on. So you like, so, but then at the end, you know, you're working within companies that, you know, processes take time, yet when you do get to accomplish something, they roll out to, you know, billions of users. So do you, and do you prefer working for a long time to get to that billion user? Or do you prefer the more startup life where every single day you're making a positive impact on the product, on the team? It's not this or that. Um, I think even when you even when you're working at a company like Google or Facebook, to get to that billion users, you're still working with a small team and you're still working with people and mentoring people and, and taking people, you know, solving hard problems every day, seeing people uh, develop as their careers as they mature in their careers. So there's there's a lot of that going on, and at the same time, publishing uh, papers that have impact on, on that right. Team. And that's more the research think, side of you. I think, um, I think without that mix, I would be um, not be very happy. And I think that's also very interesting, um, a very interesting collaboration between, you know, the research part of you, but the product part of you, which is not always, you know, it doesn't always go hand in hand, both, you know, a proper research for a professor in computer science at the same time, you know, thinking about the end user and how your products impact humanity at the end. Alon, before we leave, I want to thank you again for your generous time, really. So, Daraba. And I have to ask you the most important question, which is three words that you would use to describe yourself. Uh, thinks outside the box. Thinks outside the box. It, so- it sounds like that's a little bit what it takes to, to, you know, be a, to be a director within Facebook AI. Alon, thank you very much and, uh, and stay safe and stay healthy. Too. I'll see you around J-Ventures. We even forgot to talk about that, but I'll see you around. Okay, cool. <laughs> Take care. Bye-bye.